June 10th through 16th of Morning and Evening Daily Readings. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Ockenick. Morning and Evening Daily Readings by Charles Spurgeon. Morning, June 10th. We live unto the Lord. Romans chapter 14, verse 8. If God had willed it, each of us might have entered heaven at the moment of conversion. It was not absolutely necessary for our preparation for immortality that we should tarry here. It is possible for a man to be taken to heaven and to be found meet to be a partaker of the inheritance of the saints in light, though he has but just believed in Jesus. It is true that our sanctification is a long and continued process, and we shall not be perfected till we lay aside our bodies and enter within the veil. But nevertheless, had the Lord so willed it, he might have changed us from imperfection to perfection, and have taken us to heaven at once. Why then are we here? Would God keep his children out of paradise a single moment longer than was necessary? Why is the army of the living God still on the battlefield when one charge might give them the victory? Why are his children still wandering hither and thither through a maze when a solitary word from his lips would bring them into the center of their hopes in heaven? The answer is, they are here that they may live unto the Lord and may bring others to know his love. We remain on earth as sowers to scatter good seed, as plowmen to break up the fallow ground, as heralds publishing salvation. We are here as the salt of the earth to be a blessing to the world. We are here to glorify Christ in our daily life. We are here as workers for him and as workers together with him. Let us see that our life answereth its end. Let us live earnest, useful, holy lives to the praise and the glory of his grace. Meanwhile, we long to be with him and daily sing. My heart is with him on his throne, and ill can brook delay. Each moment listening for the voice, rise up and come away. Evening, June 10th. They are they which testify of me. John, chapter 5, verse 39. Jesus Christ is the Alpha and Omega of the Bible. He is the constant theme of its sacred pages. From first to last they testify of him. At the creation we at once discern him as one of the sacred trinity. We catch a glimpse of him in the promise of the woman's seed. We see him typified in the ark of Noah. We walk with Abraham as he sees Messiah's day. We dwell in the tents of Isaac and Jacob, feeding upon the gracious promise. We hear the venerable Israel talking of Shiloh. And in the numerous types of the law we find the Redeemer abundantly foreshadowed. Prophets and kings priests and preachers, all look one way. They all stand, as the cherubs did over the ark, desiring to look within and to read the mystery of God's great propitiation. 
Still more manifestly in the New Testament, we find our Lord the one purveying subject. It is not an ingot here and there, or a dust of gold thinly scattered, but here you stand upon a solid floor of gold, for the whole substance of the New Testament is Jesus crucified, and even its closing sentence is bejeweled with the Redeemer's name. We should always read Scripture in this light. We should consider the word to be as a mirror into which Christ looks down from heaven, and then we, looking into it, see his face reflected as in a glass. Darkly, it is true, but still in such a way as to be a blessed preparation for seeing him as we shall see him face to face. This volume contains Jesus Christ's letters to us, perfumed by his love. These pages are the garments of our King, and they all smell of myrrh and aloes and cassia. Scripture is the royal chariot in which Jesus rides, and it is paved with love for the daughters of Jerusalem. The Scriptures are the swaddling bands of the Holy Child Jesus. Unroll them, and you will find your Savior. The quintessence of the Word of God is Christ. Morning, June 11th We love Him because He first loved us. 1 John chapter 4, verse 19 There is no light in the planet but that which proceedeth from the sun. And there is no true love to Jesus in the heart but that which cometh from the Lord Jesus himself. From this overflowing fountain of the infinite love of God, all our love to God must spring. This must ever be a great and certain truth, that we love him for no other reason than because he first loved us. Our love to him is the fair offspring of his love to us. Cold admiration when studying the works of God any one may have, but the warmth of love can only be kindled in the heart by God's Spirit. How great the wonder that such as we should ever have been brought to love Jesus at all! How marvelous that when we had rebelled against him, he should, by a display of such amazing love, seek to draw us back! No, never should we have had a grain of love towards God unless it had been sown in us by the sweet seed of his love to us. Love, then, has for its parent the love of God shed abroad in the heart. But after it is thus divinely born, it must be divinely nourished. Love is an exotic. It is not a plant which will flourish naturally in human soil. It must be watered from above. Love to Jesus is a flower of a delicate nature, and if it received no nourishment but that which could be drawn from the rock of our hearts, it would soon wither. As love comes from heaven, so it must feed on heavenly bread. It cannot exist in the wilderness unless it is fed by manna from on high. Love must feed on love. The very soul and life of our love to God is his love to us. I love thee, Lord, but with no love of mine, for I have none to give. I love thee, Lord, but all the love is thine, for by thy love I live. I am as nothing, and rejoice to be emptied, and lost, and swallowed up in thee.
Evening, June 11th. There break he the arrows of the bow, the shield and the sword, and the battle. Psalm 76, verse 3. Our Redeemer's glorious cry of, It is finished, was the death knell of all the adversaries of his people, the breaking of the arrows of the bow, the shield and the sword, and the battle. Behold, the hero of Golgotha, using his cross as an anvil, and his woes as a hammer, dashing to shivers bundle after bundle of our sins, those poisoned arrows of the bow, trampling on every indictment, and destroying every accusation. What glorious blows the mighty breaker gives with a hammer far more ponderous than the fabled weapon of Thor! How the diabolical darts fly to fragments, and the infernal bucklers are broken like potter's vessels! Behold, he draws from its sheath of hellish workmanship the dread sword of satanic power. He snaps it across his knee as a man breaks the dry wood of a faggot, and casts it into the fire. Beloved, no sin of a believer can now be an arrow mortally to wound him, no condemnation can now be a sword to kill him, for the punishment of our sin was borne by Christ, a full atonement was made for all our iniquities by our blessed substitute and surety. Who now accuseth? Who now condemneth? Christ hath died, yea, rather, hath risen again. Jesus has emptied the quivers of hell, has quenched every fiery dart, and broken off the head of every arrow of wrath. The ground is strewn with the splinters and relics of the weapons of hell's warfare, which are only visible to us to remind us of our former danger and of our great deliverance. Sin hath no more dominion over us. Jesus has made an end of it, and put it away forever. O thou enemy, destructions are come to a perpetual end. Talk ye of the wondrous works of the Lord, ye who make mention of his name. Keep not silence, neither by day, nor when the sun goeth to his rest. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Morning, June 12th. Thou art weighed in the balances, and art found wanting. Daniel, chapter 5, verse 27. It is well frequently to weigh ourselves in the scale of God's word. You will find it a holy exercise to read some psalm of David, and as you meditate upon each verse to ask yourself, Can I say this? Have I felt as David felt? Has my heart ever been broken on account of sin? as his was when he penned his penitential psalms? Has my soul been full of true confidence in the hour of difficulty as his was when he sang of God's mercies in the cave of Adullam or in the holds of Engedi? Do I take the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord? Then turn to the life of Christ, and as you read, ask yourselves how far you are conformed to his likeness. Endeavor to discover whether you have the meekness, the humility, the lovely spirit which he constantly inculcated and displayed. Take, then, the epistles, and see whether you can go with the apostle in what he said of his experience. Have you ever cried out as he did, O wretched man that I am, 
who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Have you ever felt his self-abasement? Have you seemed to yourself the chief of sinners, and less than the least of all saints? Have you known anything of his devotion? Could you join with him and say, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain? If we thus read God's word as a test of our spiritual condition, we shall have good reason to stop many a time and say, Lord, I feel I have never yet been here. Oh, bring me here. Give me true penitence, such as this I read of. Give me real faith. Give me warmer zeal. Inflame me with more fervent love. Grant me the grace of meekness. Make me more like Jesus. Let me no longer be found wanting when weighed in the balances of the sanctuary, lest I be found wanting in the scales of judgment. Judge yourselves that ye be not judged. Evening, June twelfth. Who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling? Second Timothy chapter one verse nine. The Apostle uses the perfect tense and says, Who hath saved us? Believers in Jesus Christ are saved. They are not looked upon as persons who are in a hopeful state and may ultimately be saved, but they are already saved. Salvation is not a blessing to be enjoyed upon the dying bed and to be sung of in a future state above, but a matter to be obtained, received, promised, and enjoyed now. The Christian is perfectly saved in God's purpose. God has ordained him unto salvation, and that purpose is complete. He is saved also as to the price which has been paid for him. It is finished was the cry of the Savior ere he died. The believer is also perfectly saved in his covenant head, for as he fell in Adam, so he lives in Christ. This complete salvation is accompanied by a holy calling. Those whom the Savior saved upon the cross are in due time effectually called by the power of God the Holy Spirit unto holiness. They leave their sins. They endeavor to be like Christ. They choose holiness not out of any compulsion, but from the stress of a new nature which leads them to rejoice in holiness just as naturally as aforetime they delighted in sin. God neither chose them nor called them because they were holy, but he called them that they might be holy, and holiness is the beauty produced by his workmanship in them. The excellencies which we see in a believer are as much the work of God as the atonement itself. Thus is brought out very sweetly the fullness of the grace of God. Salvation must be of grace, because the Lord is the author of it. And what motive but grace could move him to save the guilty? Salvation must be of grace, because the Lord works in such a manner that our righteousness is forever excluded. Such is the believer's privilege, a present salvation. Such is the evidence that he is called to it, a holy life. Morning, June 13th. Whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. Revelation chapter 22, verse 17. Jesus says, Take freely. 
He wants no payment or preparation. He seeks no recommendation from our virtuous emotions. If you have no good feelings, if you be but willing, you are invited. Therefore come. You have no belief and no repentance. Come to him, and he will give them to you. Come just as you are, and take freely, without money and without price. He gives himself to needy ones. The drinking fountains at the corners of our streets are valuable institutions, and we can hardly imagine anyone so foolish as to feel for his purse when he stands before one of them and to cry, I cannot drink because I have not five pounds in my pocket. However poor the man is, there is the fountain, and just as he is he may drink of it. Thirsty passengers, as they go by, whether they are dressed in fustian or in broadcloth, do not look for any warrant for drinking. Its being there is their warrant for taking its water freely. The liberality of some good friends has put the refreshing crystal there, and we take it, and ask no questions. Perhaps the only persons who need go thirsty through the street where there is a drinking fountain are the fine ladies and gentlemen who are in their carriages. They are very thirsty, but cannot think of being so vulgar as to get out to drink. It would demean them, they think, to drink at a common drinking fountain, so they ride by with parched lips. Oh, how many there are who are rich in their own good works, and cannot therefore come to Christ! I will not be saved, they say, in the same way as the harlot or the swearer. What, go to heaven in the same way as a chimney-sweep? Is there no pathway to glory but the path which led the thief there? I will not be saved that way. Such proud boasters must remain without the living water. But, whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. Evening, June 13th. Remove far from me vanity and lies. Proverbs 30, verse 8. O oh my God, be not far from me. Psalm 38, verse 21. Here we have two great lessons, what to deprecate and what to supplicate. The happiest state of a Christian is the holiest state. As there is the most heat nearest to the sun, so there is the most happiness nearest to Christ. No Christian enjoys comfort when his eyes are fixed on vanity. He finds no satisfaction unless his soul is quickened in the ways of God. The world may win happiness elsewhere, but he cannot. I do not blame ungodly men for rushing to their pleasures. Why should I? Let them have their fill. That is all they have to enjoy. A converted wife who despaired of her husband was always very kind to him, for she said, I fear that this is the only world in which he will be happy, and therefore I have made up my mind to make him as happy as I can in it. Christians must seek their delights in a higher sphere than the insipid frivolities or sinful enjoyments of the world. Vain pursuits are dangerous to renewed souls. We have heard of a philosopher who, while he looked up to the stars, fell into a pit. But how deeply do they fall who look down? Their fall is fatal. No Christian is safe when his soul is slothful and his God is far from him. 
every Christian is always safe as to the great matter of his standing in Christ, but he is not safe as regards his experience in holiness and communion with Jesus in his life. Satan does not often attack a Christian who is living near to God. It is when the Christian departs from his God, becomes spiritually starved, and endeavors to feed on vanities that the devil discovers his vantage hour. He may sometimes stand foot to foot with the child of God who is active in his master's service, but the battle is generally short. He who slips as he goes down into the valley of humiliation, every time he takes a false step, invites Apollyon to assail him. Oh, for grace to walk humbly with our God! Morning, June 14th. Delight thyself also in the Lord. Psalm 37, verse 4. The teaching of these words must seem very surprising to those who are strangers to vital godliness, but to the sincere believer it is only the inculcation of a recognized truth. The life of the believer is here described as a delight in God, and we are thus certified of the great fact that true religion overflows with happiness and joy. Ungodly persons and mere professors never look upon religion as a joyful thing. To them it is service, duty, or necessity, but never pleasure or delight. If they attend to religion at all, it is either that they may gain thereby, or else because they dare not do otherwise. The thought of delight in religion is so strange to most men that no two words in their language stand farther apart than holiness and delight. But believers who know Christ understand that delight and faith are so blessedly united that the gates of hell cannot prevail to separate them. They who love God with all their hearts find that His ways are ways of pleasantness, and all His paths are peace. Such joys, such brimful delights, such overflowing blessednesses, do the saints discover in their Lord, that so far from serving Him from custom, they would follow Him through all the world cast out His name as evil. We fear not God because of any compulsion. Our faith is no fetter, our profession is no bondage. We are not dragged to holiness nor driven to duty. No, our piety is our pleasure, our hope is our happiness, our duty is our delight. Delight and true religion are as allied as root and flower, as indivisible as truth and certainty. They are, in fact, two precious jewels glittering side by side in a setting of gold. Tis when we taste thy love, our joys divinely grow, unspeakable like those above, and heaven begins below. Evening, June 14th. O Lord, to us belongeth confusion of face, because we have sinned against thee. Daniel, chapter 9, verse 8. A deep sense and clear sight of sin, its heinousness, and the punishment which it deserves should make us lie low before the throne. We have sinned as Christians. Alas, that it should be so. Favored as we have been, we have yet been ungrateful. 
privileged beyond most, we have not brought forth fruit in proportion. Who is there, although he may long have been engaged in the Christian warfare, that will not blush when he looks back upon the past? As for our days before we were regenerated, may they be forgiven and forgotten. But since then, though he have not sinned as before, yet we have sinned against light and against love, light which has really penetrated our minds, and love in which we have rejoiced. Oh, the atrocity of the sin of a pardoned soul! An unpardoned sinner sins cheaply compared with the sin of one of God's own elect ones, who has had communion with Christ and leaned his head upon Jesus' bosom. Look at David. Many will talk of his sin, but I pray you look at his repentance and hear his broken bones as each one of them moans out its dolorous confession. Mark his tears as they fall upon the ground, and the deep sighs with which he accompanies the softened music of his harp. We have erred. Let us, therefore, seek the spirit of penitence. Look again at Peter. We speak much of Peter's denying his master. Remember, it is written, He wept bitterly. Have we no denials of our Lord to be lamented with tears? Alas, these sins of ours, before and after conversion, would consign us to the place of inextinguishable fire if it were not for the sovereign mercy which has made us to differ, snatching us like brands from the burning. My soul, bow down under a sense of thy natural sinfulness, and worship thy God. Admire the grace which saves thee, the mercy which spares thee, the love which pardons thee. Morning, June 15th. And Sarah said, God hath made me to laugh, so that all that hear will laugh with me. Genesis chapter 21, verse 6. It was far beyond the power of nature, and even contrary to its laws, that the aged Sarah should be honored with a son. And even so, it is beyond all ordinary rules that I, a poor, helpless, undone sinner, should find grace to bear about in my soul the indwelling spirit of the Lord Jesus. I, who once despaired, as well I might, for my nature was as dry and withered and barren and accursed as a howling wilderness, even I have been made to bring forth fruit unto holiness. Well may my mouth be filled with joyous laughter because of the singular, surprising grace which I have received of the Lord, for I have found Jesus, the promised seed, and he is mine forever. This day I will lift up psalms of triumph unto the Lord who has remembered my low estate, for my heart rejoiceth in the Lord, Mine horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth is enlarged over mine enemies, because I rejoice in thy salvation. I would have all those that hear of my great deliverance from hell, and my most blessed visitation from on high, laugh for joy with me. I would surprise my family with my abundant peace. I would delight my friends with my ever-increasing happiness. I would edify the church with my grateful confessions, and even impress the world with the cheerfulness of my daily conversation. 
Bunyan tells us that Mercy laughed in her sleep, and no wonder when she dreamed of Jesus. My joy shall not stop short of hers, while my beloved is the theme of my daily thoughts. The Lord Jesus is a deep sea of joy. My soul shall dive therein, shall be swallowed up in the delights of his society. Sarah looked on her Isaac, and laughed with excessive rapture, and all her friends laughed with her. And thou, my soul, look on thy Jesus, and bid heaven and earth unite in thy joy unspeakable. Evening, June 15th. He openeth, and no man shutteth. Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. Jesus is the keeper of the gates of paradise, and before every believing soul he setteth an open door, which no man or devil shall be able to close against it. What joy it will be to find that faith in him is the golden key to the everlasting doors. My soul, dost thou carry this key in thy bosom, or art thou trusting to some deceitful picklock, which will fail thee at last? Hear this parable of the preacher, and remember it. The great king has made a banquet, and he has proclaimed to all the world that none shall enter but those who bring with them the fairest flower that blooms. The spirits of men advance to the gate by thousands, and they bring each one the flower which he esteems the queen of the garden. But in crowds they are driven from the royal presence, and enter not into the festive halls. Some bear in their hand the deadly nightshade of superstition, or the flaunting poppies of Rome, or the hemlock of self-righteousness, but these are not dear to the king. The bearers are shut out of the pearly gates. My soul, hast thou gathered the rose of Sharon? Dost thou wear the lily of the valley in thy bosom constantly? If so, when thou comest up to the gates of heaven, thou wilt know its value, for thou hast only to show this choicest of flowers, and the porter will open. Not for a moment will he deny the admission, for to that rose the porter openeth ever. Thou shalt find thy way with the rose of Sharon in thy hand up to the throne of God himself, for heaven itself possesses nothing that excels its radiant beauty, and of all the flowers that bloom in paradise there is none that can rival the lily of the valley. My soul, get Calvary's blood-red rose into thy hand by faith, by love wear it, by communion preserve it, by daily watchfulness make it thine all in all, and thou shalt be blessed beyond all bliss, happy beyond a dream. Jesus, be mine forever, my God, my heaven, my all. Morning, June 16th. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. John, chapter 10, verse 28. The Christian should never think or speak lightly of unbelief. For a child of God to mistrust his love, his truth, his faithfulness, must be greatly displeasing to him. How can we ever grieve him by doubting his upholding grace? Christian, it is contrary to every promise of God's precious word that thou shouldst ever be forgotten or left to perish. If it could be so, how could he be true who has said, can a woman forget her suckling child? 
that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? Yea, they may forget, yet I will never forget thee. What were the value of that promise? The mountains shall depart, and the hills be removed. But my kindness shall not depart from thee, neither shall the covenant of my peace be removed, saith the Lord that hath mercy on thee. Where were the truth of Christ's words, I give unto my sheep eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father, which gave them me, is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. Where were the doctrines of grace? They would all be disproved if one child of God should perish. Where were the veracity of God, his honor, his power, his grace, his covenant, his oath, if any of those for whom Christ has died, and who have put their trust in him, should nevertheless be cast away? Banish those unbelieving fears which so dishonor God. Arise, shake thyself from the dust, and put on thy beautiful garments. Remember, it is sinful to doubt his word, wherein he has promised thee that thou shalt never perish. Let the eternal life within thee express itself in confident rejoicing. The gospel bears my spirit up. A faithful and unchanging God lays the foundation for my hope in oaths and promises and blood. Evening, June 16th. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Psalm 27, verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Here is personal interest, my light, my salvation. The soul is assured of it, and therefore declares it boldly. Into the soul at the new birth, divine light is poured as the precursor of salvation. Where there is not enough light to reveal our own darkness and to make us long for the Lord Jesus, there is no evidence of salvation. After conversion, our Lord is our joy, comfort, guide, teacher, and in every sense our light. He is light within, light around, light reflected from us, and light to be revealed to us. Note, it is not said merely that the Lord gives light, but that he is light, nor that he gives salvation, but that he is salvation. He then, who by faith has laid hold upon God, has all covenant blessings in his possession. This being made sure as a fact, the argument drawn from it is put in the form of a question, Whom shall I fear? A question which is its own answer. The powers of darkness are not to be feared, for the Lord, our light, destroys them. And the damnation of hell is not to be dreaded by us, for the Lord is our salvation. This is a very different challenge from that of boastful Goliath, for it rests not upon the conceited vigor of an arm of flesh, but upon the real power of the omnipotent I AM. The Lord is the strength of my life. Here is a third glowing epithet to show that the writer's hope was fastened with a threefold cord which could not be broken. 
we may well accumulate terms of praise where the Lord lavishes deeds of grace. Our life derives all its strength from God, and if He deigns to make us strong, we cannot be weakened by all the machinations of the adversary. Of whom shall I be afraid? The bold question looks into the future as well as the present. If God be for us, who can be against us, either now or in time to come? End of June 10th through 16th Recording by Mike Ockenick